we've made much of Christ already this morning in our singing, recognizing that we do not in any way merit or earn salvation through our own efforts and good works, but it is extended to us freely as a gift of God's grace. And so it is all about Christ and what he has accomplished. And certainly uh, the scriptures point us to Christ as well. Uh, Paul here in the letter to the Galatians uh, wants to guard very carefully the, the, the truth of the gospel, this message of salvation by God's grace apart from any human effort. That's one of the driving themes here in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So I'd certainly invite you to join me there in Galatians, whether you have a print or digital copy of God's word, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Jesus taught, to whom much is given, much will be required. And in our culture, we say that great freedom comes with great responsibility, right? We rehearse these principles to our children when they get their driver's license. We just had another one go through that process, and they're collecting their hours now. Uh, Driving is a lot of fun, and it opens up a whole new world of opportunities and adventures. But it comes with certain responsibilities. In our particular context, it means you have to drive your other siblings around to their various events. And it means you have to go get ice cream if we're out and it's late at night and I don't want to go out myself, right? And obviously, more importantly, uh, it means that you need to take responsibility for your vehicle because... uh, Uh, There's the potential for great harm if you drive recklessly, right? And so your freedom needs to be tempered with a sense of responsibility. The greater the freedom, the greater the responsibility. Our text this morning in Galatians captures this same tension as it relates to the Christian faith. We have been set free from our sin. We have found freedom and forgiveness in Christ. If we have turned to him in simple faith, that freedom is real. We would feel badly if someone was so racked with guilt and condemnation and shame that they could never enjoy the freedom that they have in Christ. But we would also be grieved if a person had received God's grace, they had received this great freedom, and then proceeded to chart a selfish and destructive course that they didn't They didn't respond to that freedom in the right way, right? So Paul holds these elements in tension. The freedom of salvation and forgiveness in Christ and the responsibility of one who has been set free. And so we're going to explore that again here in Galatians. We're continuing our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible, Um, looking at the entire, all 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year. So it means we're looking at whole books of the Bible in one setting and getting the the big picture perspective. And every once in a while, I like to just stop and and, and just step back from even where we are uh, in that journey um, to, to, to think big picture. Genesis, really, the first book of the Bible, really lays the groundwork for us. Uh, It, it, tells us how God created the universe in perfection. It tells us how sin and death entered into the world through the rebellion of humanity. And it records God's great promise to send a deliverer who would make all things right again. The Old Testament 
Uh, as we trace through there, we see God's redemptive plan unfolding, uh, particularly through Abraham and his descendants. Uh, it was one of those descendants of Abraham that would be that deliverer, the one who would come and make all things right. And then, of course, all of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that present to us the person and work of Jesus Christ, the center point of human history. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. A way for us to once again have access to the, to the tree of life, to have eternal life through Christ. The book of Acts records the birth of the church, God's redeemed people, and we see the, the declaration of the gospel throughout the known world. This good news is sent out to the four corners of the earth. And then we have a series of letters where the Apostle Paul uh, writes to local first century churches to help them grow in their understanding of the gospel and to live in a way that was consistent with the gospel. So uh, that's the little blue stack on the bottom shelf. We're working through Paul's letters, going to be in Galatians today. Uh, and here in Galatians, Paul really helps to ward off some false teachings, some distortions of the gospel. And we can be so thankful that Paul uh, addressed these issues so that the gospel could be passed down to us in purity and we could have a, a true record of how to come to peace with God through Jesus Christ. We've also noted that each of these little letters that Paul wrote has a backstory. So uh, we want to take a moment to just consider... Uh, who the key players are in this letter. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So just a few things we want to note uh, about uh, the backdrop of this letter. First of all, Galatia is written to, to believers, followers of Jesus in Galatia. This is a region that was located in what is today central Turkey. Um, we've considered in earlier weeks Rome, uh, Romans, and Corinthians. These were cities. Galatia is a region. So Paul is writing to uh, a cluster of churches within this region uh, in places like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pisidian Antioch. The Galatian churches were established on Paul's first missionary journey. So um, Galatia was not terribly far from where Paul and Barnabas were sent out in Antioch. 
And so this is one of the first regions, the first Gentile regions to be reached with the gospel. So um, th- this is uh, sort of a, a pioneer uh, territory here. Uh, the people of Galatia were unstable and driven by passion and emotion. So uh, they had a bit of a reputation uh, in this regard. Uh, we noted that the, the Corinthians, the city of Corinth, was known for sexual immorality. Uh, this region of Galatia was known for their volatility and their instability. They were Celtic peoples. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but these were Celtic peoples. These were a bunch of redheads, right, in this region. Uh, they, they, just, they were known for being passionate and uh, a bit volatile, okay? Uh, this is a statue uh, depicting, it's actually called the, the Dying Gaul or the Dying Galatian. Uh, these were um, kind of how, the, the, this is a warrior here, uh, had longer hair than the normal Roman soldier would. Uh, if you were to look closely, he has kind of a wire uh, uh, decoration around his neck that, again, adds to sort of this ferocious look. You'll also notice that he isn't wearing any clothes. And the Galatians were known to fight naked. Okay? I mean, these are just sort of paintings and all sorts. I mean, they were a, sort of a fierce people. They were actually known, renowned for their, their bravery and their valor in war and in battle. They were highly coveted. People would hire them to, uh, to fight on their behalf. And, uh, but they were a little bit edgy, a little bit out there, okay? Uh, matter of fact, the Romans referred to them as barbarians, right? They were, we would say, rednecks. They, they were just a little bit crazy. Uh, this is the Galatians. So, so again, a very emotional people. It's interesting if you go back to Acts 13 and 14, you'd read about Paul's first encounter here in Galatia and how he established the church here. And we find... Uh, in, in, in just a matter of hours, the people go from worshiping Paul and Barnabas because they had performed a healing in the area to wanting to kill them. Uh, it's a fascinating progression in just a few verses, but it tells you something. It gives you a little window into the passion of these people. Compared to Rome and Corinth, Galatia was considerably closer to Jerusalem. This, too, factors into the story. It helps us understand what's going on in the letter here. So the little red section here is Galatia. Again, in the central portion of modern-day Turkey. And the blue circle sort of shows you where Jerusalem would be. And then the other two red circles show you Corinth in southern Greece. And then to the far left, we have Rome. So just the point being that this area of Galatia was in much closer proximity to Jerusalem. And Paul, when he went there, encountered a very large and militant group of Jews okay, who were not really happy with Paul's message. So there was a much stronger Jewish presence, Jewish opposition here in Galatia. And again, that has to do with geography. Uh, Here's what we read about the establishment of the church there. You get a little sense for some of the tensions 
that were going on. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. This is just sort of the beginning of a lot of conflict that Paul encountered in this region. So this this tension really sets the stage for Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now Paul had some significant concerns uh, and he addresses them right away. There's a few verses of greeting, commendation, but he jumps into the deep end of the pool here in verse 6, okay? And it's what I'm calling bad news, okay? Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So Paul had recently established these churches in this region. But now, in a relatively short period of time, they were turning to a different gospel, which Paul says was no gospel at all, right? The gospel is God's uh, free gift of salvation through grace, right? It's, it's a wonderful gift. That's the gospel. And Paul says, no, you've, what you, what's going on here and the way the gospel is being twisted, it's, it's no longer the gospel at all. It's no longer good news. It's actually bad news, You are submitting yourself again to the gerbil wheel of of trying to find acceptance and earn acceptance with God through human effort. So Paul identifies false teachers who were trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He says later in the letter that these people were very passionate and very zealous to try to win people away from the gospel. And Paul was equally passionate in calling these believers back to the purity of the gospel of God's grace. So we don't have to wonder why Paul was writing this letter. He lays it right out for us. He was determined to safeguard the purity of the gospel. Well, who were these troublemakers? How were they distorting the gospel? Uh, these were, it becomes very evident that these were Jewish individuals who were trying to convince Gentile, non-Jewish believers to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. They were trying to put additional requirements on these Gentile believers, specifically circumcision and some of the, the other aspects of the law of Moses. They said, unless you do these things, you can't really uh, have peace with God and be a part of his covenant people. These Jewish individuals are often referred to as Judaizers. And Paul made it clear that the teaching of the Judaizers was incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not just a difference in emphasis or nuance. It was a difference in substance. It was a completely different message 
Either you are saved by grace alone, or you are saved by human effort. Either it's a gift, or it's something you earn. But it's not both. (laughs) And Paul crystallizes here the problem with this new gospel that was being promoted. So this is the issue that prompted Paul to write the letter, and it was a critical issue. How is a person made right with God? How does a person receive salvation and forgiveness of sins and freedom? And Paul ratchets up the the intensity in this letter and you see it in a few spots in particular one of those spots is right here at the outset verses 6 through 10 6 through 9 where i just read paul says if anyone preaches another gospel than the one we preach to you let them be under god's curse literally let them be damned let them be cut off from god's presence and just in case you didn't get it the first time let me say it again if anyone I mean, you, you feel the, the intensity here. Uh, Paul uses uh, here in chapter 4 uh, childbirth imagery. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul had given birth to these believers, right? He planted this church. He brought the gospel to them. They experienced life because of Paul's ministry. And now Paul says... I'm, in some sense, having to give birth to you again. I'm in the throes of of childbirth uh, so that you can be formed, so that Christ can be formed in you. Uh, That emotion comes through again uh, here at the end of the book. As for those agitators, speaking of, of these false teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. What in the world is Paul talking about, right? These Judaizers made a big deal of circumcision. Um, Up to this point, if a Gentile wanted to be counted among God's covenant people, he had to convert to Judaism. And for men, for males, that meant they had to be circumcised. Circumcision, the removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. And they were making such a big deal about circumcision and these other rituals And Paul was angry. He says, you want to fixate on cutting? Then just cut it all off. I mean, this is really, this this strikes us as really crass, doesn't it? But Paul is serious about this. It's such a critical issue. He's not mincing words. So this is the bad news. This is what Paul is concerned about. Again, he, he unpacks it here in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. And then he devotes the rest of the letter to defending and safeguarding the purity of the gospel of God's grace. He spends the rest of the letter unpacking the good news and making sure they were clear about it. Uh, Three different uh, sort of sections here uh, in the letter. First is an autobiographical reflection on the gospel of God's free grace. Paul reflects on some of his experiences, his background, uh, to uh, reason with these Galatian believers. Paul says here that he would still have been under slavery to the law if Jesus had not intervened. He says here in verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached 
is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I think part of what Paul's doing here is establishing some common ground with these Judaizers. I mean, Paul himself was a Jew. And Paul seems to say, look, this whole message of, of God's free grace extended through Christ, uh, I, I, never would have, I never would have scripted it this way. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I was an observant Jew. I was going to great lengths to observe every little minute portion of the law. I was a Pharisee. Paul says in other uh, contexts, Uh, he says, and I was opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. I was persecuting Christians. So I get it. I know where you're coming from, but I'm just telling you that Jesus uh, confronted me and brought me to my knees and made me realize that salvation uh, is by grace. So, So Paul just shares his own personal experience and how his own mind had been changed, and his own pride had been broken. He also points out that Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church, confirmed the gospel of God's grace. Chapter 2, Paul records some of the events that took place as he went to Jerusalem to confer with the church leaders Then after 14 years, chapter 2, verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So again, even the leaders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem confirmed Paul and his preaching of the gospel of God's free grace apart from the merit of the law. So some maybe were suggesting, Paul, you've gone rogue. You are a renegade. I mean, your ministry looks so much different than the, the ministry of the other apostles. Right? The other apostles were primarily working among the Jewish people. And so some of them said, hey, Paul, you're, you're out of line here. And Paul said, no, 
No, I, I, I conferred with, with Peter and James and John, the, 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 the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. We're on the same page here. God has put forward a message of salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so, again, he shares those encounters with these believers in Galatia. To, again, call them back to the purity of the gospel. He also points out that these legalistic attitudes had already been confronted in Antioch. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul records a confrontation that he had with Peter. By the way, Paul uses here Peter's Greek name, Cephas. But he's referencing here Peter, the, 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 the leader of the church, right? Verse 11, 2.11, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So remember that Paul began his Gentile ministry in Antioch. Uh, this is where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their missionary journeys. And this is where God first began to do a real work among the Gentile, the non-Jewish people. And Peter was in Jerusalem, and he heard about what was happening among the Gentiles, and he had to go see it for himself. So he traveled from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and... Uh, he recognized that these Gentiles had received the grace of Christ and Peter fully accepted them, even to the point of sitting down to eat with them. That was a big deal in uh, the Jewish context because it represented fellowship and a, a certain union together. And so Paul began to eat with these Gentile believers and those barriers were broken down. But when some other believers arrived from Jerusalem, Peter began to pull back. Peter began to sort of cave to some peer pressure. And of course, Peter was in a position of great influence, right, as the leader of the church. And so others began to follow Peter's lead. Even Barnabas got caught up in this. So Paul called out Peter, and they hashed it out. And clear implication is that Peter acknowledged his fault. So Paul shares this with the Galatian believers as well. All this is just sort of part of his story and the experiences and the conversations that had happened. Again, all laying a groundwork again for the gospel of God's free grace. Paul then, beginning in chapter 3, lays out a theological argument for the gospel of God's free grace. He wants to help them think rightly about the gospel, correct some of their faulty thought patterns that were starting to creep in. One of the things he points out to them uh, here in chapter 3 was that even Abraham was pronounced righteous through faith and apart from circumcision or any other observance of God's law. So, 
Paul begins to use their playbook now, right? He's going back to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, even Abraham, right? The father of the Jewish people uh, was declared righteous apart from any observing of the law. So Abraham, of course, would be circumcised. But, but before Abraham was circumcised, he was declared righteous because he believed God. Uh, the law would not be given to Moses for another 430 years. Right? So, so Paul's just making the point here that Abraham is the consummate example, the poster child for all those who would wish to be justified or made right with God apart from the law. There's the model. It's in your Old Testament scriptures. Just read it. Right? Paul also wants them to understand the purpose of the law. The law was not given as a means of salvation, but to lead us to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, before coming... Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's a very, a very key word there, this whole idea of a guardian. Uh, we might say a tutor or a nanny, right? In the ancient world, a servant would be put in charge of minor children, making sure that they obeyed, that they got to school on time, right? Kind of played the heavy a little bit with them. Of course, once they became adults, they didn't need that guardian anymore. It was just for a set period of time. So this is the analogy that Paul uses, that the law was like our guardian, like our nanny. And uh, it... it it kept us in check until such time as the deliverer would come and salvation would be provided. Paul also wants them to understand that God has chosen to extend his blessing through the line of promise, not the line of human effort. So Paul just... It says, look, God has always chosen to work by, by grace. He's always chosen to, to bless, not based on our accomplishments and how much we deserve, but in spite of our sin, based on his grace and his promises. And he uses uh, Abraham again as an example. Chapter 4, verse 21 Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. So Abraham had two sons. Abraham had a son with Hagar, uh, one of his slaves or his servants. Uh, that child, that son, was born conceived and born in the normal way, that son was Ishmael, right? But Abraham also had a son with his wife, Sarah, who happened to be old, well beyond childbearing years, right? That child was not born in the normal way. That child was born in a supernatural way. 
That child was born based on God's promise and God's power. And that child was Isaac. And so Paul uses this as an analogy that when we try to come to God through human effort, we fall in the group of Ishmael, with Ishmael. <laughs> when we try to come to God on the basis of his grace and his promises, we come to him and are found to be included among the group with Isaac. This is how God has chosen to work, through grace, not through merit. This has always been his plan. And Paul closes this section by urging them not to return to slavery. Those who have been set free by God's grace should not return to slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You've been saved by grace. You've been set free. Don't return to the bondage, the gerbil wheel of human effort and trying to earn God's favor. Most of us, if you, have a relate, if you have a relationship with Christ, have turned to him in humble faith, uh, we are really clear on God's grace when we are first saved. Right? We've generally had some, uh, some crisis experience. We have come to recognize our sin and our uh, desperate condition. We come to understand that uh, we stand under God's wrath. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we come as beggars with open hands to receive God's grace. And we're usually really clear on that at the beginning. But pride and self-righteousness have a nasty way of encroaching into our hearts. Notice how Paul describes it here in chapter 5, verse 7. He says, You were running a good race, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? In other words, you, you, you started really well. This was clear at the beginning. How, did you, how have you gotten off track? How have you lost sight of God's grace? Verse 8, that kind of persuasion does not come from one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. This is a really subtle thing that has begun to creep in, right? Like a little bit of yeast that has worked its way throughout the whole lump of dough. So we have to fight against the tendency to find our identity and security in good works and moral striving. We have to remember that we were saved by grace apart from any human effort. And we are just as dependent on God's grace. Paul closes here with a moral response to the gospel of God's free grace. So, uh, he begins with this autobiographical reflection, you know, talking about conversations and uh, how they've hashed out this issue of God's free grace and how it relates to the law. And then he lays out more of a clear theology of God's free grace. And now he wants to talk in an application section here at the end about how we respond to a gospel of free grace. Paul, in his letters, generally begins with theology and ends with application and Galatians is no exception those who have been set free from sin should use their freedom to serve 
others. This is the passage that Paul uh, read for us. Chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So Paul anticipates the pushback, right, from the Judaizers. If good works aren't a requirement for salvation, do good works really matter at all? Does it matter how we live? And Paul says, absolutely it matters how you live, right? You've been set free. We don't gain our freedom by good works, but those who have been set free by God's grace should be inspired to good works. They should use their freedom well and not for selfish purposes. He calls them to this higher ethic, this higher law of love that is well above the, the nuts and bolts of the law of Moses, right? It's this, it's this, this heartfelt ethic, not just rote obligation to certain commands, but uh, there's this whole new ethic now of love that we have been called to. We live in a, a day in which many people have embraced what's called antinomianism or anti-law type of thinking, that because I've been saved by grace, I can now do whatever I want to do. Don't, don't, don't talk to me about my lifestyle or my behaviors. I'm under grace. Uh, Paul does not give them a free pass to do whatever they want to, want to do. And Paul really exposes this misunderstanding of Christian freedom. A Christian freedom does not mean that you can do whatever you want to do. Christian freedom means you can now do what God created you to do. You see, before we come to Christ, before we are set free, we are in bondage to sin. We can't help but sin. We can't get out of it. But when we come to Christ, we are set free. I don't have to sin anymore. I'm no longer a slave to sin and selfishness. So Paul helps them understand the true purpose for which they have been set free and calls them to use their freedom well. Those who have been set free have been given a new capacity to love. Paul talks here in this section about the role of the, the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. Again, we have the flesh, or what some translations call it the sinful nature. We have an inclination towards sin and selfishness, but we have now this whole new capacity. The Spirit of God lives within us. We can now choose to walk in step with the Spirit. And so uh, we have this, this new capacity because of the presence of the Spirit. Our propensity toward pride and self-deception calls for a vigorous corporate accountability. Notice what Paul says here in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. 
Matter of fact, let me pick it up here in chapter 5, verse 26. I want you to see the connection here. He talks about not living by the flesh, but, but living by the Spirit. Verse 20, 5, 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So this whole idea of learning to use our spiritual freedom is not a solo pursuit. We need other people to speak truth into our lives and help us to see our blind spots. Paul describes here what we would call church discipline, right? The accountability that comes in the context of the community of believers. I usually have to give this speech every year as we head into fall. Community hubs are starting, and we ask people to commit for a year. Get involved with a group uh, so that you can know and be known by other believers. Uh, Relationships don't happen overnight. It's going to take time, so plug in. And inevitably, uh, I have people that want to know how they can extract themselves out of a group if they don't like being in the group. And uh, I, I try to think of a really nice way to say this, but if, if you find yourself in a position where you are uncomfortable, people are too nosy, they're into your business, that person bothers you, that's probably the, 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 the main reason why you need to remain in that group. Because some sanctification is going to happen there. You're going to learn patience. You're going to learn to love people that you don't like. Right? This is the context. Uh, God has designed the friction of human relationships to spur us on towards love and good works. So this is not a solo endeavor. You will not grow in Christ-likeness in isolation. Because... The status quo tends to prevail unless we have someone else pushing us and prodding us, okay? So Paul sees it as a, 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 there, there's a, there's a communal aspect to all of this. And then Paul closes here by simply saying, verses 7 through 10, good works matter. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So good works are not the basis for our salvation, but they have eternal consequence. How we live matters. What we sow in this life will dictate what we reap in the life to come. So Paul, again, walks this line between freedom, and it is real, right? Uh, I, I, I am redeemed and set free based on the work of Christ. Matter of fact, Paul closes here in chapter 6, verses 14. He says, uh, may my only boast be in Christ. Circumcision or uncircumcision mean, mean nothing. They don't advance my standing at all. It's all about Christ and what he has done in recreating me in God's image. So that freedom is very real. But we also have a responsibility to steward that freedom well. Just like my, my daughter, who's 
going to experience the freedoms of driving, but has to hold that intention with the responsibilities that come with that freedom. And the greater the freedom, the greater the responsibility. So may God help us to steward that freedom well. I hope, I trust that you have come to know the freedom that can be found only in Christ. Undoubtedly, there's some here that have not. You're trying desperately to find freedom through a lot of different avenues. I want to tell you today on the basis of God's own word that true freedom will only come in Christ. But for those of you who have discovered that freedom, who've come to him in simple faith to receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness, you maybe need the reminder of why you've been set free. You need to be reminded of the responsibility that comes with that great freedom.